0: Hello everyone, welcome to Hail Reaper. My name is Philip, and today we're doing something a little bit different. We've spent the last four episodes talking about the dream of Io, but we haven't talked much about Io herself. A little more than two years ago, we released an episode all about the character of Io, and we felt like this is a great time to re-release that episode because it fits right into the conversation we've been having about her dream. Go ahead and check out this episode and stick around until the end because I'm coming back and I have some new thoughts about the character that were not included when this originally aired. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: I live for the dream that my children will be born free, that they will be what they like, that they will
0: own the lands their father gave them. When we immerse ourselves in a story, we develop specific relationships with the characters. We decide if we like or dislike a character based on their ability to stay within the bounds of our own personal dogmas. In Red Rising, Eo of Lycos and her definitive final act are remembered very differently, as either righteous martyrdom or self-righteous suicide. Lots of readers love Eo. Her part in the story is fondly remembered as brave, necessary, and powerful. A sacrifice of all-out devotion. She believes her life can be used to break the chains of oppression that her people suffer through. In death, she thrusts her dream of liberty into the hands of her husband, Darren. Though reluctant at first, he gradually grows into the dreamkeeper she hoped he'd become, one that could create a new reality for the oppressed. This is why so many people believe Io should be memorialized in a positive light. I'm sure there are numerous Break the Chains tattoos out there that would back this up. All that being said, what do you do with Io's disregard for her family? While being whipped, she makes an astonishing public decision to end her own life when choosing to sing the Reaping song. This true act of defiance toward the society has massive ramifications for her loved ones. Regardless of the perceived purity of Eo's intention, she leaves her husband, family, and friends with no warning. Would it be wrong to say that Io is incredibly selfish? Daryl is absolutely broken. And if it wasn't for Uncle Narrow and the sons of Ares intervening, Red Rising would be a very short story. These two depictions of Io do not align, at least in my head. Is she being a noble savior or a defiant teenager? For a long time, I've struggled to know who she truly is. But then I came across this quote from Pierce Brown, author of Red Rising.
1: Io was conceived far, far ahead of Darrow. She was the first character. It was always about that sacrifice.
0: Before Darrow, before Lycos, before freaking ugly Dan, before all of it, this quote challenged me to think differently about the slave girl from Mars. EO was never created to be our hero, so I can't hold her to that hero standard. She was created for one very specific purpose, and it's written with absolute certainty. Brown wrote her to be the match that started the wildfire and nothing more. EO truly is the Orton at all, and that doesn't make her good or bad, perfect or imperfect, virtuous or selfish. It simply just makes her the beginning. Despite everything I just said, I want to address something with you. I find her radically confusing. I still don't feel like I have a hold on who this character is. I mean, I understand her literary arc, and that was what I was addressing in the open. I get Pierce Brown's intention with the character and how he created her to be. But when you're just looking purely at personality, I, I really struggle with the character. Like A lot of the characters feel like they have kind of... Um, Pierce Brown like really quickly sets you up for who they are, I think. And they kind of just gives you... Um, a couple notes to hang on and you're like, oh, I kind of get who this person is I can kind of flow with them Io is a character that seems like she's at war with herself And so she's hard to kind of put your thumb on and kind of figure out who she is where she's going because at some moments She's like I'm the loving wife but another moment. She's like, you know, ugly Dan is you know taunting You know Darryl with, with the baton and she's like do it Daryl, like go for it Like it's like wait. do you want? What do you want? You know, I, I mean, I think I know the answer but I still like struggle with that finding out who she is as a, as a personality. So, what is your impression of that? No, I
1: would completely agree with you. I think Eo is a very difficult character to analyze. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's both very polarizing and very polarized. And yeah. I mean, I think you're you you told me not too long ago that there's an actual like Eo haters
0: club or something yeah, on like Reddit. That. There's an actual like any uh, fellow Eo haters out there, something
1: like that, which I haven't seen. But that's that's crazy to think about. You know, but I, I definitely know there's a lot of people who revere you as well. Yeah, and you know, you just said it, but I'll kind of reiterate: she is polarized. She's a she's a woman of extremes. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, at one point she's mending her her husband's hand and would never think of insulting his ego. You know, over yeah. over the loss of the laurel, but then she'll insult his dead dad. <laughs> yeah, you know, in in the next turn, and she's incredibly intelligent yeah you know she knows
0: how to like get the most out of people especially her husband like how to kind of draw those things out of them yeah
1: and you can you can use the word manipulative if you like but she definitely knows how to draw it out but but then again she has this other side of her where sometimes she just seems so naive mm. like you talked about picking up the thumper you know do it darrow and you know she she talks about like taking over mars yeah. you know but but doesn't realize that, that that would just be squashed like
0: instantly. instantly, Yeah,
1: you know? And and even at best, if, if the military didn't come in and just squash it, they would just let them starve. They would just stop sending food to Mars because mm-hmm. as far as they're concerned, nothing grows there anyway, Yeah, you know? So this is just very short-sighted, but then wildly intelligent at the other. So there just never seems to be middle ground with yeah. the it just It just one side or the other, nothing in the middle. So when you and I are trying to kind of you know, especially for the fo- podcast's sake, kind of ride that middle and and be objective and fair and, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, analyze her. It's very difficult. Yeah.
0: This is probably one of the tougher episodes we'll have to do just because of that, because of her character. But so props to Pierce Brown, though, right? Like, he made this character to be that. Like, he didn't. She's, she's wonderfully written. I mean, the best. Like, yeah. she's only, she's a snapshot. She is a snapshot in this book because, like, she's not really in the first three chapters. Like, she is, but she's not. And then she becomes a central character in chapters four and five, and then a little bit in six. So really, like her totality, her impression is only for like two and a half chapters. Yet the story is Eo's dream, like it is Eo. And so, I mean, and he made this character be for some people wildly unlikable, and then for some people like revered. And you're like, how did he do that? Honestly, I mean, I'm serious. Like it's a skill. Like props, appears for writing this character and and how he did it, and and drawing a lot of um, like the emotional like kind of either disdain or like a visceral like lovingness towards Eo. i still we're still we're still talking about it you know after yeah. all you and i have had these conversations like for a year now i remember like being at coffee or your kitchen table and we're just like who is Eo? like how do we talk about this character how do we how do we ride that middle like we said without kind of going just to our instant reactions of our like our personal emotions and we're going to get to that we're actually going to address that but We're trying our best now to just kind of, you know, talk about her a little more objectively. I want to kind of dip our toes into the garden scene because this is the scene where she becomes defined like as a character, like truly. And that's where we find out about the dream and like kind of what the makings of the dream actually are. and, And that conversation back and forth with Darrow. The first thing that really jumps out at me though, like when you're in that moment is how you really feel like you're eavesdropping on a conversation between a husband and a wife. Like it feels very vivid. I I don't know. I it's almost like, especially when you do the audiobook version of it and then there, uh Tim Gerald Reynolds is so fantastic. Yeah. But I mean the written word too. But either way, it feels like you're you shouldn't be there. Like you shouldn't be listening <laughs> to this conversation. Um, but what's left so like a heavy impression for me is how different their personal dogmas are. Mm-hmm. Like, how have they been married for six months? How have they known each other since childhood? And yet this is the first time they're having this kind of like conversation that defines like who they are as people and then also ultimately is defining their marriage in the process and then then their eo it's it's inexplicable she's waiting to this time to give him this gift and then she gives it to him and then turns on a heel and says okay so now are you gonna start a revolution for me like what like that is so bizarre the timing of that is so strange so i'm, I'm kind of i wonder if that's in my own head this is me almost thinking out loud right now but like vocally processing like did Pierce Brown just let Eotis be EO? Like, is this like, he just kind of had to get in her head space and go, would she have done this? And I think, well, obviously the answer is yes, but like, how strange. Is there anything in the garden scene that you want to talk about specifically other than, I mean, I guess we could go in the weeds on that one, but I want to talk about like other stuff too. No, I mean, you know, you brought up personal
1: dogmas and I guess I'll just add my two cents there. I mean, you know, we talked a lot about Daryl, right? And how last week mm-hmm. and how satisfied he is in his place. Yeah. And how he views himself as a provider. You know, he says, you know, without me, she would not eat. And without her, I would not live. Like he really kind of builds this picture that EO is his entire world, Mm -hmm. that family is the most important thing. Right. And kind of, he he builds a picture for you. But EO, on the other hand, you know, she's a zealot. She believes that um, you know, only through freedom, you know, can can anything be happy and harmonious. Yeah, and just doesn't share that. And and Darrow has this aloofness to him, like he he just seems like he's, you know. She tells him all these things, and he misses it. There's even a quote later in in the in the set of chapters where he says, you know, she yeah told him thing, and I I didn't listen. You know, yeah. and it, it just seems like he's like um, out in the front yard, you know, on the lawn with a hose. Uh, the white picket fences in front of him. He's just like staring to the sky, like watering the
0: lawn. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's just missing everything. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. He's just like, well, I'm, I'm happily married. I'm good. You know, he does not realizing yeah. my wife's in the kitchen constructing bombs. So, you know, I, you <laughs> know it's like he's state. like, like yeah. he doesn't even, he's oblivious. Yeah, he really like, is. And obviously those are not real bombs. It's just, you know, it's just like the idea that she's, you know, mm-hmm. she's, she's wanting this moment. She's, she's ready for this moment when it, when it comes, when it happens. There's I mean feeding into that though there's a quote that we both like kind of gleaned a lot out of when we like looked at the story of Eo and Darrow specifically Eo, where after that garden conversation after that you know very private very meaningful conversation of, she's asking him to take up, uh, Darrow's father's dream and run with it even more and then adding her own like kind of twist on it to make it even like to make in her mind to make it perfect, but they're exiting the garden. And this is where we run and talk like Dan in a second. But they're exiting the garden and you're in Darrow's thought process. And he says, does she want me to take up my sling blade and start a rebellion? Like he's still piecing it together. Like right. he still did. <laughs> he went through this whole conversation. <laughs> he's like, wait, like, does she, is this is what she wants me to do. And then, then he adds, everyone would die. And he's meaning himself, his family and her. And right. like, and he's like, and then he adds, nothing would make me risk that. Like I would never and then also he finally adds, actually at the end of that, she knows that. She knows that nothing, like he there's nothing that she could speak to him that would make me risk her life. I would just never do it because of like what you said. Without um, without me, she would not eat, without her, I I can't live, I can't function. That quote is I think this like epitomizes both characters and their their stations and their roles.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because we talked about um kind of our our view of EO. And I, it's cha- it changes, you know, not only is it really difficult to kind of grasp her, but as I continue to reread this, you know, especially for the podcast many times now. Yeah. Um, like a dozen times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very close. Um, you know, she changes and, uh, you know, on first read, you know, down the road at the gallows, which, you know, we can talk about more in, in depth soon, but you know, she, I thought she was kind of making this, this really spur of the moment decision. You know, to to give her life, but every time I read it, I just get like these little hints and these little nuggets that she planned this earlier and earlier. You know, like, yeah. when when was she ready to pull the trigger? And it just seems so early to where, you know, you were talking like, does he want me to pick up the the blade and start a rebellion? Like, who will die? You know, everybody, and I kind of see it like this this chessboard, and you know, Darrow. He doesn't want to play chess. <laughs> yeah. know, he, he doesn't want to approach the board because he refuses to put his queen at risk. And it it just it paralyzes him. And it, like you said, Eo knows that. Mm-hmm. And so what is her option? Because this guy is the guy who can get it done.
0: Yeah. Right? She knows that. If
1: anyone's gonna get it done, it's Darrow. Nobody else can do this. Yeah. And he will not if she is in the game. So she needs to take herself off the chessboard.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like her way of granting him freedom to mm-hmm. do so. I mean, I think it's kind of twisted, it, it but it, but at the same time, this is her way of saying, you can play chess now because I'm off the board and then now go and beat the other player, essentially. Yeah,
1: and we see, right, in the future, Darrow's great at that, right? He can he makes a ton of gambits, yes. you know, he and he's very good at it and he has that emotional detachment, but Io was his weak point yeah. and he could not... Do a queen's gambit,
0: he yeah. refused. I like that. Is that that's an actual move, right? In chess, it is. queen's yeah. gambit, it is. What is that? What do you do?
1: It's when you purposely allow the opponent to take your queen, but it allows you to opportunely like set up for for an attack to checkmate them. Ah,
0: I actually, I'm really poor at chess, and I don't think I've played since like fifth grade. And I was in <laughs> fifth grade, so I was probably really bad. Um, yeah. let's go ahead and talk about that next scene that really defines her. It's the gallows, and it's obviously in the commons, it's that really public place, but. This is another one of those scenes that Pierce Brown, I think, really wants you to visualize. I mean, I think that's his intention for the readers. He wants it to be grand and to feel really vivid and alive. It's a scene that he's trying to show you the anxiety, the sadness, and the anger that Daryl feels, but to do that, it's not just this singular vision. It's this multitude of people that are gathered here to really elevate this, this scenario. And so Pierce Brown drops again, he drops these kind of breadcrumbs, these nuggets of telling us how big Lycos actually is, but we don't picture it that way. At least I didn't picture it that way. You and I say, when I say we, you and I didn't picture it that way until you did the math for us and said, this is what it would actually look like. So at the gallows, in this common place, what does this look like? How many people are there?
1: Yeah, so you have uh, 24 clans and 23 of them live in these townships, you know? So I, I kind of view it as this, wagon wheel or or honeycomb kind of kind of looking thing Mm -hmm. right and there's tunnels that that attach to them the 24th clan is gamma which is the largest of the clans and they live above the commons and so each one and and just so you know i and i don't know if even the listeners can can kind of track with me here but i've always viewed it looking like fraggle rock
0: (laughs) so yeah throw that fraggle rock in there
1: i have to throw that in there it was like
0: what that was like probably I don't. I can't imagine that being on TV after like ninety two, ninety three.
1: I don't know. I, mean, I watched ba-
0: it as a kid. We're eighties babies, so that so eighties babies will get that one. Yeah, but I mean, it has
1: the Jim Henson, right? Yeah, which did Yoda for Star Wars, and Pierce Brown is a huge Star Wars fan, yeah. so it's plausible. Yeah, there we go. That. Let's it's just say plausible, it's plausible that Fraggle Rock is Wait, the is Tim.
0: Tim is our producer. Tim, you're twenty three. Do you know what Fraggle Rock is? He has no oh, there clue. You go. <laughs> he has no clue. Keep going. But Pierce Brown does. Yeah. We'll see <laughs> anyway, does.
1: All right. So you have uh, 24 clans, 23 of them. It talks about the size of the of the mining, um, of the mining group, about mm-hmm. 200 each. And Gamma, being the largest uh, that always wins, um, has 300 miners. So if you, if you take, you know, if you double that, because you take kind of 50-50 for women-men, mm-hmm. um, and then you add the, you look at the working age first, right? So you start working at 13 years old. And life expectancy is late thirties, early forties. There's very few elderly or invalid in this in this kind of- um, Community. Community environment, yeah. So really, you kind of have to add in just the youth. So, you know, that's going to be like 25 to 30% of the population will be youth. And then when you do all that math and add it all up, you're at a number of 12,000 reds in Lycos.
0: And that's like a, a number that I would have never thought of. I would have, until and, and you kind of put the math together, my own visual reference for this is like 500, 700 people thinking Lycos is is small. It's not, it's like a little tiny town in like the middle of nowhere, rather than thousands of people.
1: Yeah, I was there as well. I was probably 500. Yeah,
0: for sure. Well, that's, you know, this is the completion of Eo's story. Like it it manifests in this moment because obviously she sings the reaping song and then, you know, and that's, you know, put to her subsequent death, which, and, and that scene is just, it's scary. The one thing that really bothers me though, about this is that Magistrate Progenius comes down and kind of like, you know, there's an exchange between Nero and Magistrate Progenius and they talk like, how, um, you know, anyone else share in this? Does anyone else share her opinion? Because she's obviously going to be put to death and it doesn't happen. It just doesn't. And no one speaks up. No one speaks up for her. Not like they don't kind of go, yeah, like I want to sing too. Or they want to have some solidarity with her. Her own parents don't do this. Her husband is gagged so he can't do this. And he mentions like, they're all scared. And he's like, he'd be ready to go. He's the one who would. Yeah. yeah. He'd be ready to go. And he would gladly and happily die alongside her, but he's not given that opportunity. But it really bothers me. It's always bothered me why no one stood up with her or like stood in solidarity with her in that, especially as being a parent, myself, you being a parent, like how would you just stand there and not do that? But I guess it speaks to the level of oppression they're in. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, you can't ignore that, like that part of it. Yeah. Like they're just like, they've been conditioned to just obey. And like that's, you know, like obedience is the highest virtue. But it, I, I still can't get, I don't know what, if you, that's a problem that I have or something you, you would justify or?
1: No, I mean, you have obedience, like you said. You have, you know, kind of the quote where Darrow talks about how the Greys carry their thumpers but they would never need them because mm. everyone kind of falls in line. Yeah. Um, like you were saying, I mean, obedience is not only a virtue, um, but you also have kind of this reflection of this peaceful protest. You know, I mean, yeah, they, they you know, disabled uh, the collaterals by taking a few parts out. You're talking down, about you Dale. Know. Dale, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, their memories here are of anyone who does stand up just is killed immediately, you yeah. know. And I think just with the oppression, like you said, they, they learn to fall in line. Darrow has that quote where he says that, you know the greys carry thumpers, but would never need them mm-hmm.
0: because no one's going to act out. Yeah, there's just they're just too afraid, and they're they've been conditioned at that to that point. Yeah, for sure. So then again, I mean, we're just kind of walking through this step by step. But yeah, and then that's it. That's Eo's character. It's completely done. It's completed, and it's kind of fulfillment of Pierce Brown's intention, which and that we talked about earlier with that quote. And he was she was always created for that sacrifice, and I, I really love that reflection of it, kind of going back and kind of linking the the story, fill up the reader with that quote. Cause it means I, I, I kind of get it now a little bit, you know, we talked about how we're confused by her too, yes. yeah. but there's another thing that we, we want to address kind of within this death scene is because, you know, and it's a qu- opinion that you have, that I think is unique and different. And I'd like you to share it is Persephone and it's kind of like her role. And uh, you, you even said to me, she is way more important than EO and you even see her as a second character rather than the character herself.
1: Yeah. I think this is kind of that, that, uh, you know, Phoenix from the Ashes moment for EO, where I think she's split into two different people. You know, EO, the person herself who is married to Darrow and has that life, is now dead, you know, and what lives on is Persephone. I kind of look at it in the same light that like Superman would be, you know, in relation to Clark Kent. You have Clark Kent, who has the nine to five job, he has the relationship with Lois Lane, he has uh, his buddy Jimmy. You know, no, and he, dang, yeah. And he has all that kind of stuff going for him, right? But then he turns into Superman, you know, when he goes into the phone booth and now he's this moniker of of hope and justice, you know, and and eO very much in the same way is like that, you know? because outside of this internal dialogue with Endearo going forward who who will always remember his wife mm-hmm. and and reflect on her. But everybody else in the galaxy, um only knows Persephone.
0: Yeah. She's not Eos, she's Persephone. No,
1: she's she's mythology, you know, she's also that moniker of of hope and of justice. Yeah. But she becomes this mythology and and nobody knows her flaws. Nobody knows that polarized character that we don't know how to handle. All they they just know, you know, this myth.
0: Yeah. Let's move on to do our favorite quotes. So each week we'll be probably most weeks, we'll be taking our, our some of our favorite quotes from the chapters and just kind of mentioning them, calling them out. And also, they're, they're really worth exploring a lot of times because they kind of feed into what we've been talking about with maybe the character itself. So go ahead and read that first quote for us. Death is an empty like you say it is.
1: Emptiness is life without freedom, Darrow. Emptiness is living chained by fear, fear of loss, of death. I say we break those chains. Break the chains of fear, and you break the chains that bind us to the golds, to the society. Could you imagine it? Mars could be ours.
0: I like your EO voice.
1: Thank you. It's uh, she has a deep voice.
0: I think if we, if there is like some sort of like TV show for Red Rising <laughs> or <if> a movie, <laughs> I think we should petition you to be the voice. You think so? You can dub it. Oh, and we have wow. we can have a girl play it, but you should just dub the voice. Should I instead like do it in
1: my Graham Chapman Monty <laughs> no, Python voice? No, stop.
0: Stop. We're not talking about Graham Chapman. All right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, no, I, I like this quote a lot, and I think that. There's a, re- there's a lot of people like it for different reasons. I think you and we, you and I even have different reasons we like the quote. But I think the primary way people really like love to read this quote or like like to kind of what they like to glean from it is that it has this kind of spiritual like foundation for EO. Like it's break the chains. It's like it is that those moniker of hope like kind of verbalized or realized in, in kind of like this verbal form. And, and she's sharing this in a moment of like almost to tears with her husband so it has this real deep emotional resonance and impact but for me like what i like about it so much is that it's not really like that experience but more so that i could explain to someone eo probably just with this one quote i could it, it kind of it's like the thesis of eo it's, it encapsulates her perfectly and so that's what i really like about it that's why I, g- I gleaned from it personally i don't know about you
1: yeah no it shows her zealotry you know early on uh and it's it's interesting we talked about this just prior how you know darrow is a bit aloof mm-hmm. you know and kind of missing the fact that EO is planning all this and this is from that conversation in the garden of course and then it just kind of uh, encapsulates that and as well as on the very tail end the mars could be ours you know there was an early reference yeah. in the pod where um you know i had said you know it's kind of naive of her you know she's she's very intelligent but at the same time she says these kind of things like you know, if, if you just pick up a sling blade and, and uh, seek death, like, no, Mars Mars well, will not be yours. In
0: her defense, we see it that way because we have a we have a reader scope. She does know, like, her scope is so it's limited. It's a very,
1: very narrow scope she has. Yeah, yeah,
0: but I kind of wish that, I mean, this is my own interjection, I guess. I do kind of wish that she would be a little bit more sit back, like, kind of, like, you know, search, let things happen a little bit more instead of acting out of that zealotry or that emotion sometimes because I think she could have been... And like, if you kind of like, I mean, weirdly, if you could rewrite this book and have EO like even last a little longer, what impact she could have made on the story going forward? I think it would have been monumental. It could been huge because her perspective is is valuable. It's just that it's also bogged and mired in all this zealotry and emotional thinking, which can uh, kind of cause her to act super rashly. So that's just like the, I guess her her problem, I guess, or her flaw, which I don't think she has many, but that's that's a huge one. Go ahead and read the second quote. All right. You think a dream is worth dying for.
1: I say it isn't. You say it's better to die on your feet. I say it's better to live
0: on our knees. And that's going back to that. It's in the garden conversation again. You know, it's that personal dogma. is just not aligning whatsoever. And this is showcasing that. You know, it's not just us talking about it. It's like Darrow's verbalization of like, there's no way like this is that casting aside my life and your life for a dream. That it's just a dream. Like it's not reality. It's not obtainable. That's how he sees it. He's... It's just some fantasy for him. And then for her, this is like everything. And it's, a, it's, it's really stark, the differences between the two characters. And this is so illustrative of that.
1: Yeah. No, well said. I, I don't have anything to add.
0: <laughs> cool. we move well, on. It hits th- number three.
1: As her voice finally swells and the song runs out of words, I know I've lost her. She becomes something more important. As she was right, I do not understand.
0: This is a, a weird one like a really good one, but a weird one because he's like, I have lost her. She becomes something more important and she was right. I don't understand. But yet he just mentioned like seconds ago that she's becoming something more important. Like, so how does he not understand that? But it's more like it's wrestling for him. It's the wrestling of he doesn't understand that dream. Not that he doesn't understand what she's doing. He understands what she's doing, but he still, even in her death, even when she yells, break the chains to those 12,000 reds there even when she mouths live for more to him right before she dies, he's still at a level of just complete disbelief and lack of understanding for everything she's doing. He, it's almost like, and at some points it's a refusal to understand. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you feel about that one, but I think it's like, he just doesn't want to recognize, he doesn't want to be there with her. And and, and he doesn't want to play chess, like how you would say it.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, you could probably harken back to that chess conversation again to kind of summarize this in a way. Um, but he he does know it's important. I agree with you. Um, but his understanding of it doesn't really come to fruition for another couple of chapters, if not like maybe the first third of the book.
0: Yeah. I mean he's the book kind of essentially becomes Daryl discovering EO's dream through a, a series of scenarios. Like that's really that's really what Red Rising is in a lot of ways. It starts here. It starts in this moment of him wrestling with that greater understanding and then kind of ascending with her. Uh, along the way but but i don't know i I would say it's not till the end of the first book that he actually really really understands like her dream and understands the importance and he's like he's right there with her like writing that line so let's go and wrap up the podcast we mentioned earlier we're going to reserve our own personal thoughts and personal feelings on what we think of eo till now so we've been trying i know we probably didn't do a really good job we've been trying to kind of ride our ride that line that be a little more objective but here we are. We're going to go ahead and kind of explain how we feel about the character. So, Jeremy, you're up first. How do you feel about EO? Yeah, when you try
1: to walk the ridge of the roof, you know, eventually you're going to lose your balance and fall on one side <laughs> or the other. Yeah. And uh, I fall into the camp that that dislikes EO overall. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm in some sort of haters club or anything like that. I, no way. Yeah. I just can't get on board with a character that is so unkind to her husband. Mm-hmm. Um Making fun of her, her his dead father. Not
0: even making fun of, it, at least bringing it up as a point of like, kind of like reverse psychology. Like that's low because that's what I think she's doing. Yeah, and, and it really just comes down to manipulation.
1: Like mm-hmm. she's highly manipulative and uh, and unkind. And I just, like I said, I just can't get behind it.
0: It's for me. It is that. It's that kind of like. The her death scene doesn't really bother me. Like it's the garden scene. Like her death. Like being, uh, you know, what people how people picture her. Her final act. As being a martyr, so therefore, you, a lot of times the last thing you do is what people remember, and that's what she gets credit for. But no, we have the benefit of having the clear big picture here. And chapter four, the gift, she is so deeply uh, wounding Darrow in that in that garden conversation, like kind of almost like playing Jacqueline Hyde, like come with me, I'm gonna like you know we're gonna have this really rich, beautiful experience as husband and wife. Then I'm gonna. You know, seconds later, I'm going to bring up your dead dad, and I'm going to kind of throw it in your face as a way to kind of help uh, motivate you and instigate you to doing this with me. And it, he doesn't believe in that, and she doesn't let him have that option. And I think that's that's really hard. So for me too, it's it's kind of a I love her arc. I think we we said this already. Beautifully written character, she is um, wonderfully written. But as a personality, I I don't have any uh, affection for her. So, which is unlike a lot of characters in this book, I have affection for most, all all the people you're supposed to like. I like them. (laughs) I do. Um, I I don't really like dislike anyone uh, in that sense. But I have another question for you as we wrap up. Um, You know, we mentioned in my, like kind of my opening, is EO remembered as the, either the righteous martyr or the self-righteous suicide? Where do you fall on that?
1: Self-righteous suicide for me.
0: I, I, I feel like we're going to get so much bad email, but I feel like (laughs) at the same time, it's the, for us, it's just our truth. You know, we, we do feel like that. I feel like she could have been more like a character we're talking about next week. Dancer. He's just so observant. He sits back. He collects the information. He lets things manifest in a way and unfold in a way that are so healthy, but then he knows when to strike and she was just incapable of that. And so because of her inability to sit back and collect and and kind of draw up all the tools that she needs, she becomes more um, of a suicide in a sense. She's kind of, she's so willing to take her own life that it just becomes negative. So that's where I wrap up on her too. That being said, that's episode two. Next week, we'll be back with Dancer. Until then, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. Thanks to Pierce Brown for writing the beloved Red Rising series. A special thanks to Tim, our engineer and sound designer. Check out his music on Spotify by looking for the link in our podcast description. And thanks to all our contributors who made this show possible.
1: If you enjoy what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review us on your respective podcast platforms. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Reaper Pod, And you can email us at HailReaperPod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us, please take a look on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash HailReaper. Until next time, from my co-host Philip. I'm Jeremy. Thanks for listening.
0: Hello, everyone. I am back. I'm here to talk about uh, that episode and just kind of Talk about some things that I liked from it, but also things that I didn't like from it, um, because I have a lot more maturity in the story, as I'm sure a lot of you do too. And you know, you read a book and you read it once, and you have an opinion, and then you read it more, and you're like, "Oh, my opinion's changing." And so, like, this is this is how I feel. I feel like I listened to that, and I'm like, "Oh, man, I, I feel so differently now." And I want to talk about that, and specifically in the way that we ended the episode, and the whole episode itself was a character study. We're looking at all of Eo's actions, all her all her parts or components and trying to kind of judge them and make sense of them. But in doing so, I think they kind of led to a binary way of viewing the character where we're saying, was her last action a sacrifice or a suicide? And now I just feel like that was so needless to do um, because Pierce Brown has just writes so much nuance and so much gray area in this story at large. And specifically with Io, like, she doesn't need to be labeled a certain way. The character is just ultimately doing what she thinks is right, what she thinks is best and using every tool available to herself to push the ball forward. And she does. And she was right because her action, that action really is what leads to Daryl becoming the version of himself that the story needs in order for the story to take full shape. So it's like, why try to label EO one thing or another when really ultimately she's just right? Uh, so that's just the way I see it now. I think it's just kind of again reductive to kind of try to label her one thing or another when really she just pushes the ball forward in the way that needs to go. Uh, one thing I liked from the episode was I, I think I, I think I, something I said it was to the uh, effect that Darrow the whole these books are Darrow trying to decipher and then act out what he believed EO's dream was, which I think is just a really cool way to write a, a series of books is to take a protagonist, and have him apply the logic of a dead woman to all these unique circumstances and situations that she never even knew existed. That is such a a cool way to write a book. So I just have a, I think when I said that on the episode, it didn't give me a more appreciation for my take. It gave me more appreciation for how Pierce Brown wrote the books. I was just like, wow, like what a cool, unique way to write a series. Uh, I I just like, like that more and more the more I think about it. Another thing that I I think now just criticism I have that I think is now humorous is that I said something along the lines of uh, EO, uh, rather Darrow, didn't understand EO's dream until the end of book one. It's like, I am not sure he still does. And I I think that there's, this series is still going. I can't just like limit it all the way to like just the end of book one. I think there's a big moment of clarity that we talked about on a prior dream of EO episode. I believe that was the rage episode. Talking about chapter thirty-five, where where Daryl really kind of comes to full realization of what the dream is. But realization of something doesn't mean that you kind of fully embrace it. And I think that there that embrace is still going. It's still happening. It's in progress right now. So I think that Daryl has more to embrace with Eo's dream. And I think we're gonna see that show up in Lightbringer, and we're gonna see that show up maybe in Red God too. Because I, I don't I don't know what those books hold. So we'll we'll see what that happens. But. Eo uh, is a character so full of depth and she, her, her character is so lasting and we're still talking about her. You know, all these years later, this first book came out in 2014. It's almost a decade old. And yet her her impact of the story is is so permanent, so unique and so lasting. So uh, I just have such a deep appreciation for the character now where I think in that episode, I kind of, I think was uh, minimizing her role and minimizing how, uh, how I see her then. But now it's just like my my appreciation for her and my, uh, the way I view her is just immense. She's like, she's all time. Uh, so that's, I'm gonna wrap up there and just kind of wanted to come on and just again, offer a few quick thoughts. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. We'll be having a new episode of the Dream of Io series. Uh, that's gonna be part five titled Love, focusing on the love of Severo. Just we're, we're gonna be talking about chapter 54, Morningstar. Go and read that if you haven't in a while. One of the best chapters you can ever read in a Pierce Brown uh, novel. So just amazing. So we'll see you next time. Until then, Hail Reaper.